Welcome to Queer Tools. This week, communicating across a language barrier. Part one. The questions this cast answers are, how do I present to an audience where they have different first languages to me? How do I work with colleagues who have different native tongues than me? And how do I communicate across the language barrier? We've already sold out a record-breaking three events in 2018 and are well on our way to doing it again. Trust me, nothing is worse than when we have to turn eager people away in order to keep a small class size. If you're thinking of registering today for an upcoming event, don't delay. By registering today, you're guaranteeing yourself a seat at an upcoming event of your choosing. Visit us at manager-tools.com forward slash training to reserve your spot today. There are lots of teams nowadays are made up of individuals who speak different languages because there's immigrants, because they are across the country, because they're across the world. Um, there might be different customers in different countries from you. There's lots of, a lot more interaction now than 20 years ago with people who speak different languages or don't have a different first language from you. And it's kind of difficult. You, you're you in Silicon Valley, right, today. Mm-hmm presenting at Effective Communications Conference and you're Canadian. How, how different do you find Canadian than American? I don't find it different at all. However, I was at brunch with friends on the weekend that I hadn't seen in a while. And my friend Simon said to me, you kind of sound American right now. <laughs> so there, there are definitely distinct differences, differences that I easily pick up on and Differences that I think maybe I don't notice anymore mm-hmm. because I am immersed in the American culture. Yeah, I find the same thing. When I go home, my mom's like, "You, it's not that you pronounce them wrongly, it's just you put the emphasis in the wrong place. So, and they, so it's a very subtle change. So this is a long cast because there is a lot you can do to help communicate with people who don't speak the same first language as you. So, you know, uh, most of it's going to, we're going to say English is a foreign language, but it could be English. It could be that you're in Germany and you speak German and the person that you're working with is in India and speaks one of the Indian language. It, it could be any combination. So read us our, our outline. All right. Our outline is speak more slowly, say it again differently, use short common words, don't use idioms, don't tell jokes, don't use contractions. And don't be afraid to ask for readbacks. It's a long list. So the first one is speak more slowly. And so to demonstrate why we need to speak more slowly, we'll take a simple sentence. So if I said, I went to a meeting with procurement and they told me about a new process. There's nothing complicated in that sentence. Most people would under, most people for whom English, 99% of people for whom English is a first language would understand that. But what happens in your brain is important for understanding why you need to speak slowly. So if you hear that sentence again, I'll say it again, just think about what's happening in your brain. I went to a meeting with procurement and they told me about a new process. In your head, you translate it into pictures because your brain doesn't do words. (laughs) It thinks in pictures. So when you hear the first part of the sentence, I went, you think, it, you know, I, you, you have whatever your visual um, imagination gives you of Wendy when I say I, and went is a, is a moving thing. So I was walking or I was driving or I 
uh, skated, but you but but you know there was movement. So now you can see in your head, you can see me, and you can see moving. So then, if I say I went to procurement, now if if you're in the same company as me, you know where procurement sits, for example. And so you now you're imagining me walking down to that office, and when I say I was in a meeting, you think of a bunch of people around a table. Some of people, those people are procurement people. And if you know some people in procurement, those are the people you'll think of. And if you don't know them, you just kind of put placeholder people in. They look a bit like Lego. <laughs> fuzzy faces. Yeah, Lego people. And so then you you see those people talking. You see them perhaps giving me a piece of paper, which is me giving me the new process. Maybe it's a piece of paper with the word new written on it or something in red, which signifies new. So... It's a simple sentence, but there's a lot of imagination that goes into imagining that. But because English is your first language, you do that in milliseconds. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So for someone with English as a foreign language, depending on their skill level, on their experience, there are large gaps in that internal movie, that movie that Wendy talks about. You're making pictures in your brain. They know that I is the person that they're talking to. They may not know that went is the past participle of go to. So instead of seeing that person walking, they actually have a picture of the person standing still and the knowledge that something, I'm not certain what, something ought be happening. Now, they may or may not know what procurement is, but if they do, once they hear that word, they realize that you're not standing still, that went must mean that the I in this sentence and procurement are somehow coming together, somehow they're joining. So when they hear meeting, then the supposition is confirmed. Okay, yes, went does mean those two groups of people got together. Right. And so they fill it in, in a different order, because they don't know what all the words are. Mm Mm-hmm. If you're listening to a language that you yourself are not fluent in, you don't actually understand the beginning of the sentence until you've heard the end of the sentence. So in our example, went doesn't even make sense until we get to the word meeting and it confirms it for us. And that's why when we're communicating with somebody, for whom our language is not their first language, going slowly is especially important. So pausing at the end of the sentence much longer than you normally would is useful because your audience needs time after they've heard the end of the sentence to go back to the beginning of the sentence and run it through quickly in their brains, filling in the blanks, with the context that you added by the end. Typically, we speak quicker. People, I get, as Wendy mentioned, it's a millisecond in our heads. We're able to tie that together because English, in this case, is our first language. But for other individuals, when they have to do that, that tie back at the end of every sentence, that additional time is helpful for them. We also have a co- habit of combining our words when we're speaking our own language. So it's, if you imagine it, it's a little bit like cursive writing, joined up writing. Instead of writing out individual, you know, every letter, we combine letters to make them flow together in cursive. And when we're talking, we combine 
words like we say things like I want to go to the store now wanna is not a word <laughs> wanna is a is a combination of want and to and if English is your first language you probably don't even hear yourself saying it you just do it without knowing so if you're rehearsing a speech or a presentation or you just want to get better at this record yourself and then listen for the words where you're combining them and split them up again because these poor people these people who for whom english is a second language who are trying very hard to understand you you're just making it harder by combining words in all you're making words up yes and and they go to the dictionary it's not in the dictionary it's very frustrating absolutely all right the next one on our list is say it again differently now, if we were to go back to our initial example sentence, I went to a meeting with procurement and they told me about a new process. As we said, our audience may or may not know what went is. They may or may not know what procurement is. In order to make sure that they understand us, we can reiterate or say that sentence again differently. For example, I went to a meeting with procurement and they told me about a new process. Bob and Joan told me in the meeting I had with them that there will be a new way of buying parts for us. If someone repeated themselves in this way in our own native language, that is if you are a native English speaker and I reiterated it in that simplistic form, you'd likely be a bit insulted. But for somebody that's struggling with the language, it's a confirmation for them that the translation they did in their head of the first sentence was done correctly, or on the flip side of that, it was not, and that they ought to seek clarification. Unless you are listening to a foreign language, it's really difficult to understand how much that you need people to, to repeat things in different ways, because you can get very confused by a word and then you're thinking about that word and you don't hear the next four sentences because you're trying to work out what that word meant. And if so, if somebody says it again in a different way, you get another chance to understand what that word was and then hear the next sentences. And you don't need to do this sentence by sentence. So it sounds a bit weird when you do it sentence by sentence, although it depends on the level of knowledge of the people you're working with. But if you're explaining something, you could do it paragraph by paragraph or concept by concept. So for example, we're going to use a new project management technique called Scrum. It's a way of implementing agile methods such as collaboration, self-organization, and cross-functionality of teams. It will help our team work together and achieve faster progress in our projects. Now, if you're in a team or an organization that uses Agile and Scrum, that makes perfect sense. If you don't, <laughs> there's a lot of long words in there and there's a lot of kind of woolly concepts. Concepts are harder in a foreign language. It's, it's really easy to say, would you move the table? <laughs> it's way harder <laughs> to describe some esoteric concept. So one way of get, repeating this without making it sound like you're just repeating it um, is to use uh, a comparison or an analogy. So in this scenario, a comparison would be the difference between a recipe and a diet. A vegetarian diet, that's what we're calling agile, is a set of rules around the foods that you will eat. But a recipe for chickpea tacos 
would be a framework. That's the way you're actually implementing the method. The recipe is the way you implement your vegetarian diet. It's the physical thing you see from the principles that you start with. So if you can get someone to understand the difference between diet and a recipe, then they can understand the difference between scrum and agile. It's the same relationship. And analogies are really helpful as long as you make it really clear that you are making an analogy uh-huh. or a comparison. <laughs> right. And that you use something that's really simple and really familiar. Because otherwise you get really confused people wondering how we got from programming to chickpeas. I don't know. Yes. Whoa, what are chickpeas have to do with Agile and Scrum? Super confused now. I haven't had a, a PC for a long time, and I don't know if you still have to do this, but when PCs were new, you had to defrag them, which meant that you ran this program that released some of the memory that was being held up, but not actually being used. And so my mother said, I don't understand. What am I doing? Defragging. I said, imagine a bookshelf and all the books are higgledy-piggledy on all the shelves, right? A a bookcase with bookshelves and all the books are higgledy-piggledy. What you're doing is you're taking the books and you're lining them up nicely. And then you'll probably have an empty shelf at the bottom that you can use. That's how your computer works when it's defragging. And it was, it's a very simple analogy it's something that she was completely familiar with and it worked really well until she was telling my brother I did the thing on the computer that rearranges the bookshelves (laughs) (laughs) and then then my brother came to me and said what did you do (laughs) (laughs) so think of those when you're thinking of an analogy think of something very simple and very familiar the next part is use short common words So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary contains about 470,000 words. Many of those words fit very specific circumstances perfectly. Who, for example, hasn't used the word incontrovertible in the last week? I use it every day. (laughs) Every day. Every day. Now, while an English speaker, we may not use that that often, we can work out what all of the different pieces of that word mean to figure it out. That is much harder for a non-native speaker. So if there's a sentence and it's incontrovertible that our customers love our products, you yourself in your head as an English speaker can work out incontrovertible. In at the beginning of the words usually means not. So it's not something. And controversy is an argument. So when you stick those together, in controversy probably means not arguable. And you can do it in your own language in microseconds. You put those together and it makes sense. But what if it's not your native language and you're also trying to work out it's a contraction of it and is. And love here means not romantic love, but like very much. And you have as long as it takes for someone to say that sentence to work it out before they move on to the next sentence. And you have to work that one out instead. So now you know why we go slowly, because all of that is happening. (laughs) Right? 
that one word is taking many, many seconds to figure out. And we might be belaboring the point here, we might be sort of staying on a point, but but whilst it's obvious that short common words will be helpful to a non-native speaker, we don't often listen to ourselves long enough to hear that we're not doing that. In fact, I could just rewrite that sentence I just said as, we are being very detailed here because many people will agree that using short common words is helpful, but they will not do so when speaking or writing. I mean, belaboring is the word I use because it was the one that fit. It was a, it's a very specific word and it very it fit very specifically. It's not entirely obvious. So if you, even if you know that labor means work or labor means ladies having a baby, how did those two things, we might be working the point here? That doesn't make any sense. So you have to listen to your own words. You have to read your own words. With the question in mind, am I being perfectly clear? Because if you don't do that, if you just read it and it's your words and you're an English speaker, you'll understand it. Sometimes when I write show notes, Sarah says, that paragraph makes no sense. (laughs) (laughs) Which is fair. Because I wrote it, I understand it. I understand the point I was trying to make. I understand why I picked those words. And But coming to it cold... It's harder. So using shorter, more common words makes it easier for non-native speakers who may have a much a much smaller vocabulary than you understand your points. And if you struggle with using simpler words in English, or if you're not sure that you are, you can Google the Plain English Campaign. They have an A to Z of alternative words to use. I know myself, I oftentimes have been caught saying, I have the worst mental thesaurus. It's that. It's you're really familiar with some words that, again, as Wendy said, are extremely specific for a situation. But how to break that down and make it simpler. And there's lots of guides um, in the Plain English Campaign and examples of complex and simple sentences as well as instructions. And they have this awesome like A to Z and you look up controvertible, incontrovertible, and it says not to be or people don't argue about or uh, something. It's You can literally replace the word that you want to use that has four syllables with a small sentence of words with one or two syllables. Yes, small, many small words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The resources that they provide are really, really helpful. So I hope if you're listening in like 2025, they're still doing this. Uh, but in 2018, the Plain English Campaigner are there to help you and they do a really good job. All right. Let's do idioms. Don't use them. Don't use idioms. An idiom is a group of words established by usage as having a meaning not deducible from those of the individual words. And that's such an easy explanation. I know, right? 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 I wrote that. I copied it out of Miriam Webster and I was like, I don't think even I understand that. (laughs) So the most common example that we could give for an idiom is, it's raining cats and dogs. Now, while it's potentially possible that fish and frogs could come down in the rain, cats and dogs have never come out of the sky because it were raining. And what it means, what we all as English speaker knows it means, is it's raining hard. 
if you're not a native speaker of this language, would you be able to figure out that it's raining cats and dogs means that the rain is coming down hard? One of the ways to understand how hard idioms are for people who don't speak your language is to look for idioms in other languages and see how difficult they are. So, for example, in Czech, you can say, are you walking around the hot porridge? And first of all, Americans don't know what porridge is. It's oatmeal. Like, why would somebody be walking around a bowl of porridge or oatmeal? This doesn't make any sense, right? Well, actually, what it means is, are you beating around the bush, which is also an idiom. And so what we're really saying is, come straight to the point. That's what that means. In Dutch, you can say, don't polar bear. Polar bear, in my head, brings up ice. That's the only ice, Titanic, you know, I could probably go for a while. But it certainly doesn't mean don't stop pacing up and down, which is apparently what it means if you speak Dutch. And this is my favourite. In Korean, you can say it's a carrot to something that's not a carrot. You say it's a carrot. (laughs) And it means it's obvious. I guess because carrots are kind of simple and obvious. You know, if you see a carrot, you know it's a carrot. It wouldn't be something else, but that's not, that is not obvious if you do <laughs> not, not speak Korean. Right. And English, if you speak English as your first language, is equally obtuse. It's yes. equally confusing Absolutely if English is. isn't your first language. If you want to look through your writing and look for words that are incongruous, um, if you're writing a process document and you write, watch a movie, that doesn't fit. What you probably mean is, this will take a long time. If you're writing about scoring an own goal, and you're not a soccer commentator, then you probably need to re-look at that sentence. They clearly don't fit. Read what you've written and look for the things that don't fit in a workplace environment. And you'll probably find, like, it's a carrot wouldn't fit in a workplace. And so if you've written that, One, you're writing in Korean and well done. Uh, And two, it doesn't fit. Exactly. So if you're rehearsing a presentation, then record yourself and watch the recording back with one single simple question in your head. Do I use any idioms in mind? It can be hard to watch a video and not pick out a dozen things that you want to change or adapt And forget to listen for one very specific thing. We hear idioms all the time. They can easily blend into the background and go unnoticed if that is not your only priority. So having one question in mind, am I using any idioms, is helpful. Try not to pay attention to the other things. And it's often when we're speaking and we're most unrehearsed, least practiced, that we slip into idioms or other forms of complex language. We're just used to saying things like, oh, he hit it out of the park. Because other speakers of our language who grew up with us, who know exactly what that means, can say that or use that. And it's a shortcut to understanding. We know it and it's so second nature We know that most English speakers would never have to second guess what that means. It saves us time. 
So recording yourself occasionally can really help you um, identify those things and help you hear what you're saying, how often, how many idioms you use. And I find we tend to use or, or lean on the same ones repeatedly. We do. Because they really hit home for us. It's funny, there was, a pod, there was a podcast I wrote, which I remember very vividly. I wrote in it, Danger Will Robinson. And when you and I were talking about the cast, you said, I don't know what that means. And I said, I don't know what it means either, but I know it fits in this sentence in right. American. And I had to go and ask Danny, Danny, what does this mean? Because neither of us knew, but I know it fits. And that's just a demonstration of how confusing these things can be. Like, even though I knew that it fitted in the sentence, that this was somewhere that Americans say this phrase, I still didn't know what the phrase meant. <laughs> so it's very hard to understand what it's like to have English as, or the, the language that you're speaking being a second language and which things trip you up. But hopefully in this, we've been clear enough about the changes you can make, even if you don't have a really good sense of how hard this is. And hopefully Absolutely. we've helped you. Absolutely. Help, hopefully we've helped you understand how hard this is. Even if you don't have a really good sense, then just make these changes. Speak more slowly. Say it again differently. Use short common words and don't use idioms. Next week, we'll do jokes, contractions and readbacks. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Wendy. Bye, everyone.